Thanks for having such good voices. It's really, it's really fun. Um, I've got a smattering of things to say or potentially say this morning. Uh, it's problematic when uh, we enter into a worship series because undoubtedly uh, Pastor Stephen is going to want one of the uh, Sundays in that series to have a special focus on worship. And so he says, Jed, why don't you preach on worship, which is great except that I can't help myself from thinking about everything that I would ever want to say about worship, and it causes all sorts of a ruckus in my mind throughout the course of the week. In any case, I, uh, I apologize beforehand that this may be something of a Jackson Pollock painting. Uh, in fact, there, earlier this week was a big, huge, tall ladder, and I kind of wish it was still there so I could stand on it and do this motion every time I set a new point. Uh, and so you, uh, I, I, there is an order to things, if it's not making any sense at all along the way, that's okay, because by the end, I'm quite confident by the grace of the Spirit, something uh, will, be, will, will appear that, that will be worthwhile. Um, we're in the middle of a series on generosity. Stephen has uh, led us very nicely through the, um, the, uh, the paradox of generosity, that it's, that it's through giving that we are blessed, that it's through letting go that we receive. Uh, and he's led us through the, the idea of generosity in witness, generosity in evangelism. And today we're going to talk about generosity in worship. And the scriptures have dozens of horrible examples of worshipers. Just terrible, terrible people and doing terrible things. Uh, and uh, so, for example, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, who are pretending to be generous, and they sell their house to give to their community, uh, but then they hoard some for themselves and are struck down, or the, uh, the whole courtyards in the temple when Jesus goes to them and flips their tables because what was intended to be a space of worship has become, in his own words, a den of thieves. Uh, there's lots of bad examples, but I want to focus or at least observe uh, one instance where I think we have a good example of generosity and worship, and it comes to us as is on the screen from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 17 through 25. I encourage you to pull a Bible out if you haven't already and flip open to that uh, chapter of our text. Um, context of this, it's nearing the end of David's life. This is, in fact, the last story that we get of him before his deathbed. And... Uh, it results in actually the, the finding of the location where the temple will be built by his son Solomon, which is really interesting, but not a part of our sermon for this, for this morning, uh, but just kind of cool. David has decided, he's been incited by the Lord because the Lord has become angry with him again, uh, to hold a census, which means he sent his armies out to all of uh, the, the, the cities and the regions that he is in control of. Uh, think the beginning of the Disney movie Mulan. And he is counting up his fighting men and recruiting as many people as he can for his army. And now David has been told over and over again that, uh, that he is not the, the good king, according to God, is not one who has many soldiers or many horses and and David is going out and gathering this big army. And, and the Lord is angry against him and sends an angel, a plague, against the people. And we pick up right 
after this plague has begun to stretch over the land and destroy Jerusalem and the people from Dan to Beersheba. Verse 17, when David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family and implied not them. On that day, Gad, who was a prophet who walked with David, went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Araona, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Araunah looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Araunah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Aruna said to David, Let the Lord, my Lord, the king, take whatever he pleases and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing uh, sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Aruna gives all this to the king. Aruna also said to him, And may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, No, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Generosity and worship. We've got a couple really nice examples in this text I hope you're picking up on already, and we'll move in and through them and see what they they show us. It might be helpful just to define our terms Uh, Today, when I use the word generosity, uh, what I mean is not withholding. So a person who is generous is somebody who doesn't withhold something from somebody. I think this is a really helpful definition. It's pretty straightforward, right? If uh, your neighbor knocks on your door at 12 in the morning and says, I really need butter, which happens to me all the time, I... Uh, I'm, and I might give them butter. And if I gave them butter, I would be being generous in that moment. I would not be withholding my butter from them in the middle of the night for whatever baking project they had been assigned. However, if I wake up very grumpy and angry, which is appropriate as well in this particular instance, and I withhold my butter from them, I may not be being cruel, but I'm certainly not being generous, right? Generosity is to, is to not withhold something. The, the pinnacle of generosity would be to not withhold anything from somebody. And the pinnacle of generosity we saw 
just last Christmas season in Advent when Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son, was given to us. God withheld nothing and showcased the pinnacle of generosity. And uh, we'll see that again very plainly in Lent when we, uh, when we remember that we're from dust to dust and that we don't need to hold on to these things because when Christ dies and is raised from the dead, we share in his eternal life and we don't take any of our material things with him. And his generosity becomes our generosity. He withheld nothing, therefore we withhold nothing. To be generous is to not withhold Seem fair? The other word that we've got to pay attention to is worship. And I think worship as a word, as a concept, is a lot trickier. Um, there's way too many questions. Worship in sort of a Webster form is to, um, uh, to adore or have reverence towards something, particularly a deity. And that's fine, uh, but that's so generic. And I'm interested, what does Christian worship look like? What does it actually look like? What does it require? What does it sound like? How does it feel to participate in I have to have all of these questions, and if you look through history, you'll find as many voices as there are languages to try and answer that question. And so I'm not interested in trying to resolve that question today, but I am interested in looking at how this passage might help us draw our attention to a few aspects of worship that that may often be overlooked. And I really, really want to be able to see them clearly today. So... um, As we think about generosity and not withholding, and as we think about worship, let's just one more time hear the text. I'll read it slightly more quickly, and then we'll continue going. And then we'll secure my clip into my pocket. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And just a hint, his worship has begun already. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arona the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. And when Arona looked and saw the king and his men coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. And Arona said, Why? Has my lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague on the people may be stopped. And Arona said to David, Let my lord, the king, take whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him, and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. O king, Arona gives all this to you. Arona also said to him, And may the Lord your God accept you. But the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and he sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land and the plague and Israel was stopped. Again, thank you, Lord, for these words. One thing that I notice immediately that's perplexing to me uh, is that David, in his worship, what does his worship actually look like? That's one of our questions, maybe, is uh, he, he offered two offerings. One was a burnt offering, and one was a fellowship offering. And 
as is usually helpful to do when you come across things that are labeled specifically, it, what are they? It's a good question to ask. Why is it important for me to know what this is? Why doesn't it just say, and he offered stuff? He, he had a burnt offering and a fellowship offering. And it's also important to notice that this type of worship is very different than what we just did. Right? We sang songs. We used guitar and a silly kick drum. And there's no music in this instance, although David knew lots about music, and especially the harp and stringed instruments. But there's, this type of worship is, is sacrificial. It's a bringing an animal or animals to be killed and offered up to the Lord and burnt. And David is worshiping, as you all are very aware, in the tradition of his people, of the Israelites that has been given to them through Moses. So when Moses met with God in the burning bush, God said, I will prove to you, this will be the sign unto you, that you will be delivered by me. You will be delivered out of Egypt and worship me on this mountain. And that came to pass. And on that mountain, God established this system of worship. It was led by the Levites, who were the priestly people, one of the tribes of Israel. And it, uh, it, it started on this mountain, and we, we know very well one of the elements of this worship, uh, which is the, we just did a sermon series on it last fall, the Ten Commandments. Part of the worship of the people is to receive and recite and know the Ten Commandments and live into them. Another massive element of their worship and of the, the directions for how to worship the Lord that, that the Lord himself gave to the people on Mount Sinai was the instructions for a tabernacle. And the tabernacle is a tent made of skin, and there's a courtyard, and there's an altar, and there's a, there's a big giant, it's hard to call it a bowl because it's so big, it's like a small, it's like a kitty-sized pool, right, but made of gold, uh, and full of water for washing, and then there's, an, there's another tent made of fabric inside the tent made of skin, and inside that tent there's candles, and there's bread that's offered to the Lord, and the priests worship in that holy place, and inside that tent there's a curtain, and behind that tent you all know it is in there, the holy of holies, the, the, the seat, the very mercy seat by which God sits. And, and God sets up these instructions for the tabernacle because God desires worship to be... Uh, something that the people do together and the tabernacle becomes a place where the people can know and be aware and have physical uh, um, inner interaction with the actual place of worship. So the whole community of, of Israel, their government, their culture, their religion, their sense of identity becomes built around the presence of God in this place and meeting with the presence of, of God in this place but not only with the presence of God, with one another. Which brings us to our third point about uh, what God did on Mount Sinai, or at least three of the things, was he had them learn, for the Levites to, to practice, a huge set of sacrificial offerings. And five offerings in particular come up. Two of them we get in this story. There's, there's the burnt offering, and there's the fellowship offering that we get. And then there's also a grain offering and a sin offering and a guilt offering. And there's all five of those for unintentional sins. And there's five of those for intentional sins. And there's way too many laws that anybody could ever learn. Uh, but there's these sacrifices given. And in the two that we see David offering, I think 
we get a really good summary of the goals of that whole system of worship that God established. A burnt offering and a fellowship offering. Fellowship offering we'll start with because it's fairly simple. A fellowship offering is an offering that's given to enhance the fellowship. It's also called a peace offering sometimes. And so if you're making peace with somebody, you give an offering and you share this meal together. And so when you give this offering to a priest, the priest gets to keep a portion of it for themselves because they don't eat otherwise. Right, Stephen? And the rest of the community shares in the rest of this offering, the rest of this meal, and has fellowship together. And this offering is designed by God for the people to create peace and wholeness and unity among them. The other offering is a burnt offering. And if the fellowship offering is the offering that most emphasizes everybody sharing it together, the burnt offering is the one that most emphasizes nobody eats any of this. It is burned for the entire day. It's left on the altar until there's nothing but ash left. There's nothing but the smoke that is risen to the Lord because this offering is devoted wholly to God. And these are the two offerings that David gives in his, in his attempt to, to worship the Lord and plea for, for mercy and forgiveness and for healing of the land. And we get these two bars that are emphasized in the two offerings. In the fellowship offering, there's a horizontal end goal. There's a horizontal desire. The desire is for us, who are all equal and on par and eye of the Lord, to have unity with one another. And in the the burnt offering, there's the vertical element. This offering, this worship, it's all the same worship, but this element of our worship is most emphasizing our our upward-looking eyes, our desire for unity with the Lord. And so in the two offerings, the burnt and the fellowship together, David is saying we are desiring fellowship and peace among the brothers and the sisters with unity together in you, with you. Vertical, horizontal. This is what worship ends up being about, at least two of the most significant things of it. And you need both. You absolutely, utterly need both. And I'm afraid we get that confused Sometimes, and I've, there's, there's two camps, kind of an aside, move out of the biblical studies thing and into modern perspectives on worship. Um, you'll hear people argue, not in this congregation, but outside of it, uh, about what the goal of singing in a church should be. And to way overgeneralize, the two camps are, one group thinks that, that singing is fundamentally about being able to hear the congregation's voices together singing as one songs that teach and edify the people. Right? That's really good. And then you have another camp who thinks that the main function of the time of worship and and song is uh, to have a spiritual experience with the Lord. Uh, And I actually don't care very much if I can hear what other people are singing or even what they're doing because my emphasis is on what is happening between me and the Lord, his presence in this room and my awareness of his nearness, which is also really good. You're familiar with these two camps of voices? And unfortunately, these two camps of voices often clash with one another and try to argue that their view is better than the other's and that the other is invalid, but it seems really plain that 
that we need both. We need our time of worshiping together to be an opportunity for us to give an offering that unites us as God's people with God up and above as he comes down to bring us up to his glory. We need both of these offerings. So there's these two offerings. The vertical, the horizontal aspect of Jewish worship. And for us, this pendulum of, of singing and, and of uh, intent as we gather together. Are we, are we fellowshipping with one another or are we coming to church to fellowship with God? And the answer is an adamant yes. Right? Yes, and absolutely both. The next observation that I'm really fascinated about um, is uh, maybe I'll, I'll ask in form of a question as well. So far we've talked about offerings burnt for unity with God and for unity with each other, but what, what is the typical thing we think about when we think about giving offerings to the Lord? We, forgiveness of sins, right? That's what we bring sacrifices to the Lord for, is to be forgiven of sins. And so when we bring an offering, are we, uh, are we going to the Lord to have unity with one another or to have unity with, with him or to have our sins forgiven? And again, the answer is yes, <laughs> correct. All of these things happen in this glorious moment where we worship the Lord and come into his presence. We are forgiven when we approach his throne with our offering, with this gift that, that is our recognition that we need his mercy. I come not withholding anything, being generous with my sacrifice because I know that the Lord will be generous to me in return and has been generous to me already. And in that generosity, paradoxically, I'm set free. Forgiveness, the confession of sin, the unity with one another and the unity with God are inseparable in the place of worship, and we need them all to happen. We need to become people who withhold nothing. We need to become people who, who seek the presence of the Lord without keeping secrets. Consider what it might look like if you tried to have, when we talk unity, we're talking intimacy with one another, right? We're talking nearness. We're talking fellowship. We're talking true brotherhood. We're talking the metaphor that God uses for, for the worshiping relationship with his people most often is that of a husband and a wife in an intimate relationship. And this one he uses the second most often, or maybe they're very close, is that of a parent and a child, an intimate, a deep, knowing relationship. And so let's pretend for a second what it would be like to, uh, to not take seriously this idea of the forgiveness of sins uh, and of this, this, this wholeness, this generosity of worship in, in our other intimate relationships. So to come to church, metaphorically, is to go on a date with your spouse. Right? And, and I think... 
we all want when we go on a date with our spouse or with our significant other or uh, if you're a child when you go to your friend's house to play a game or something. We want to have an experience that's really profound, that's really meaningful, that's really fun, that's really memorable. And similarly, when we come to church, we want to worship and have an experience that is profound, that is meaningful, that is, that is true, either in a congregational form or in a vertical form. And, and so I'm going to go on a date with my spouse, and my expectation is that it's going to be awesome. There's going to be fireworks everywhere, right? And what I'm doing when I go on the date is sitting across from my spouse, knowing in my own heart that I haven't give, given her the time of day for two weeks. I've lived in the same house, but I haven't actually had a meaningful conversation with her. I've, uh, I've actually, even worse than that, I've been lusting after other woman, metaphorically, right? And, and actually, worse than that, I've been buying things that she didn't know about because... But there's still going to be fireworks tonight, you know, because I can keep a really good secret. Now we need not to withhold anything from our spouse. If we want the experience of intimacy to have any sincerity, to have any depth, for it to have any truth. And in just the same way, when we come to worship, we can't keep secrets. We can't withhold anything. Or if you're a parent who wants to throw a... Who knows your kid's birthday's coming up? Uh, and so you say, yeah, I'm going to throw a birthday party for my kid, but you haven't spent time with your kid in months. Not serious time. You've gone to work. You've come home. You've gotten angry with them for not listening to you enough, and you've gone to bed, and you've woken up, and you've left before they did anything. Not saying that's any of you, but when we... When we know what intimacy is like with our children, I want to throw a birthday party for you. I'm just going to chuck money at you, or I'm going to pretend like things are good. I'm going to pretend like I've been and expect things to work out. And you know that doesn't work. So don't come to a worship service expecting fireworks, expecting this to be a grand time of unity. If you've been harboring sin, if you've been withholding guilt throughout the course of your week, or if you come here expecting this to uh, I bring this up especially because of the first words that David says. And I gave you a hint. This is when his worship, his worship has begun already. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. And on that day, instead of the Lord inciting him to rebellion, the Lord sent a prophet to him and led him into his presence and led him into worship and opened up for him the threshing floor that would become the temple where the Jewish people would worship for generations and generations. It began with this time of confession. Generous worship. Worship that unites us with God. Worship that unites us with one another is inseparable from confessing our sins, is inseparable from the need to not withhold 
our shame and our guilt. Jesus says in the New Testament, if you go to the temple with your offering and you have something against your neighbor, first leave your offering and go resolve that with your neighbor. Why? Because worship and the forgiveness of sin and the resolution of guilt are inseparable. God says over and over through the prophets, I don't desire your sacrifices. They are repulsive to me because you've been sinning against me, because you've been ignoring the poor and practicing injustice. Or David in the Psalms says the the sacrifice of our God is a broken and a contrite heart. We can come here and we can pretend that we're going to have a great worship service. We can pretend that our church is going to be full of the presence of the Lord, but if we're harboring sin, if we're harboring guilt, if we are unwilling to release, if we're trying to withhold our own shame, our own fear of one another, the results are not going to be as we hope. As Aruna says, may the Lord your God accept you. My fear is we harbor too many secrets. We harbor too much sin. We come to church and we put on a mask and say, yeah, 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 things are good. I can, I can worship. But is, is that an acceptable, is that acceptable worship to God? He chooses. I don't get to decide. But I hope we can be a people who come to this place withholding nothing so that when we come here we know there's nothing standing in the way between me and you, Lord. And when we come here we know there is, there is nothing that's standing in the way. And this is the freedom that Jesus talks about in worship too. Because when I let go of my sin, I am free from my sin. When I don't withhold my money and my resources, I'm free from slavery to my money and my resources. When I don't withhold my grudges, my hatred, and my anger, I'm free from these things. And now I'm free to be moved by the Spirit of the Lord, and this is our goal, unity with the Spirit of the Lord. And I'm free to love my neighbor because I don't have any grudges against them. So this is the invitation as we build on our building, as we invite people from the community more and more into our sanctuary to worship with us. Don't withhold your sin. Confess it. Share it. Don't be ashamed of it. David was not ashamed of it. He was guilty of it, and he confessed it, and the Lord healed the land. May it be that we can be a people who confess our sins, who worship the Lord and find unity with him and with one another as we do so. And just like with David and our Una, may it be a result that the land around our building and even the land inside gets healed and whatever plagues us would be released from us. This is my hope. Shall we pray together?
Father, may I be the first one to confess that my worship has so often been insincere, that so often I've withheld my true love for you. Throughout my week, I've cared not for you, I've not cared for these people, and even though you've given me such a beautiful responsibility to lead in worship, I've taken it for granted. And instead of withholding nothing, so often like David had the opportunity to do, I've seen shortcuts I could take. I've seen people give generously, and I, I see that as that good, but, but Lord, I want to give myself. And Lord, I pray for each of us here that, that we would be set free from whatever it is that binds us from doing that, whatever it is that keeps us from, from a generous worship, from a wholehearted worship. Let us not be half-hearted, Lord, but, but would you have our whole heart? Would you have our whole mind? Would you have our whole strength? Because you are one God and you deserve every, everything. So we praise you and we worship you and we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit to come to bless us and to forgive us of our sins through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.